People hated Jesus. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want that to sink in. And as you consider that, I want for you to remember the words that David said as we celebrated Jesus just a few minutes ago around this table. The reason that he did everything he did was for people, for us. And yet people hated Jesus. He who never sinned against anyone at any time, in any place, for any reason, people hated. He who was love incarnate, love in the flesh, people hated. And Jesus knew it. Matter of fact, if you're taking notes, the sermon title is People Hated Jesus. Jesus knew it. Jesus said so himself at least three times. Three times in John 15 alone, wherein it says in verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it, here it comes, hated me before it hated you. Verse 24 of John 15, he says, they have seen and also hated both me and my father. And in verse 25, he says, they hated me. I don't know about you, I never really thought of it kind of this point blank before, but, but it's really difficult to focus in on, to really let that sink in, and, and to really accept that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, God in the flesh, God who is love, He who was the divine embodiment of love incarnate, that never sinned against anybody, was hated. But he was. And he knew it. Not only does the scripture say that Jesus was hated, the scripture says he was despised. Now to me, despised takes hate to a little bit deeper level. Despised. Where does the Bible say that? Well, Isaiah 53 and verse 3 tells us not once, but twice. And keep in mind, this was written some 700 years or so before Jesus came to earth. He knew that he was going to be hated, despised even. Isaiah 53.3 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. Isaiah says it twice and uses that word. The Hebrew word translated despised in that passage means to despise, obviously, to regard with contempt, to disdain, to consider vile, despicable, and worthless. That's what the word means. It is the same word used in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 19. You will recall that Nehemiah revisits Jerusalem, sees the wall in such bad shape, and it says there in Nehemiah 2, beginning at verse 17, Nehemiah says to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. 
Come and let us build a wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build, and they set their hands to this good work. A few years ago, at Affirming the Faith, it was a lot made of the, the fact that they set their hands to this good work, and the whole theme that year was on Nehemiah and the wall. But then it says in verse 19 of Nehemiah 2, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobaniah the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us, saying, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? He said they despised us. It's the same Hebrew word. And we know if we know that story of, of rebuilding the wall and Nehemiah, how these enemies, at every chance and opportunity they got, they sought to stop the work on the wall. Jesus was hated. Jesus was despised. I'm sorry, but I still can't quite get it through my head, knowing how much we love and adore Christ for what he did for us, that he was so hated, but he was. And you know, that's the way Jesus was viewed in his day, and still the way some view him today in this world that we live in. They find Jesus to be one who is worthless, not worth their time to discover. Vile, despicable, despised. They find Jesus to be one to be mocked. How many signs do we see and, and maybe things on social media where, where Jesus and, and everything that Jesus stood for is mocked and ridiculed and lied about. In fact, in Jesus' day, they wanted to get rid of him so bad that they would do whatever it took in order to get separated from him, to get rid of him, even to the losing of their own soul in many cases. Basically, they utilized any one of three ways to get rid of Jesus, to separate themselves, themselves from him, and all he was trying to do was help. I want you to turn to me, if you would please, to Mark 5. The first of the three ways that they sought to get rid of this Jesus was to demand that he leave their area. They told Jesus, get out. Don't want you here. Get out. They were a little more kind, perhaps, than that. But Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. When he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day, night and day, check this out. How would you like a guy running around wherever it is you live through the woods just shrieking all night long? Right? That's what was going on here. Although always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. As we look through the next verses, down through verse 13, we see that Jesus healed this man, got rid of the demons. In other words, Jesus had the power to help the people that lived in this area to sleep better at night. We get down to verse 14, after Jesus has put the demons in the swine and they've run down the hill and drowned in the sea, it says, so those who fed the swine, verse 14, fled. They told it in the city and in the country. They went out to see what it 
was that it happened and then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon possessed and about the swine and then they began to plead with him to depart from their region they begged him to leave don't stay here get out why this is key why what had Jesus done wrong? What sin had Jesus committed in their area? Had none. No, not one. Jesus admitted in John 15 and verse 18, speaking of people overall, not just this specific event, they hated me without a cause. There was no reason. They were convinced there was a reason, but there really wasn't. Jesus was only there to help them be able to sleep better at night, to rid them of their demons, and to help them better see and understand God, his love, his power, his presence, his providence in their lives. So why on earth did they implore him to leave? Why did they do that? Well, because he did something that totally challenged their way of thinking. He did something that totally challenged their understanding. Instead of taking the time like the townsfolk in John chapter four to come out and listen to him and try to understand the help he was there to give them, they simply sought to get rid of him. Now, as far as we know from the scriptures, Jesus never visited this area again. As far as we know, and so, as far as we know, these people never came to grow in their faith and knowledge of God beyond this point, as far as we see in the scriptures. Did they get to heaven? I'm not God. I don't proclaim to be. But based on the evidence at hand, it don't look real good, but moving on. Second way that they sought to separate themselves from Jesus was instead of demanding he leave them, they left him. Turn to John chapter 6. Number 2. John chapter 6. <clears throat> we know that Jesus is taught here about eating and drinking his flesh and blood. We understand he did this as he taught in the synagogue in Capernaum, just as it says in John 6.59. Now John 6 and verse 60. Therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Again, they're, they're, they're admitting that, that they, they don't understand at this point. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about them, about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Jesus believed it offended them, perhaps. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was going before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But still we find in verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And again, I want to ask the question. I really want us to think about this because it's going to apply to us later on. What had Jesus done wrong? What sin had Jesus committed? Who had he mistreated? What word of God had he mistaught or misrepresented? None. No, not one. 
Jesus was there only to teach them the truth, to increase their faith, and to help them to see and understand the divine love and power and purpose of God more clearly. So, why'd they leave? Well, because when he taught this truth, they really challenged their thinking and their understanding instead of taking the time to really, again, like the, the, the townsfolk in John 4 that, that come out after the Samaritan woman went back and, and talked to them, rather than come out and really sit and try to understand and learn what Jesus is trying to tell them here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and, and all of these things that, that he was teaching, they simply didn't take the time to even try to understand. They just scrammed. As far as we know, Perhaps, probably, more than likely, I don't know. A lot of them never grew a lot more in their faith and their understanding of Jesus. Third way, people sought to get rid of him. If those two were not amongst them, the third way was to simply take matters into their own hands, begin plotting and scheming with others how to destroy him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. John eleven fifty three. So how'd they do it? Well, they began by increasing both the intensity and frequency of the scrutiny with which they sought to argue and trap him in his words. Matthew 21, verse 23, through chapter 22 and verse 45. When that didn't work, they took advantage of a disgruntled disciple named Judas, carefully and purposefully mischaracterized what he had said and done, sought and found others who were willing to provide false testimony or lie about him, if you will. Then they spread all of this that they had come up with together in an all-out attempt to sway the court of public opinion against him, and as we know it worked, Matthew 26 and 27. But, but, but once again, here's the thing. Once again, why? Why is critical? Why is crucial? Why did they do it? Or, or to quote Pontius Pilate from Matthew 27, 53 and, and Mark 15, 14 and Luke 23, 22, Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? Pilate said, give me something, if I can paraphrase. Well, what, why are you doing this? Had he mistaught his father's will, not Jesus, nope. Had he mistreated the people, nope. Had he in any way sought to misrepresent who he was as the son and servant of the living God, nope. No, he hadn't done any of those things. So why'd they hate him? Why'd they despise him? Why did they cook up this scheme to get rid of him if all he ever did was to humbly and faithfully seek to serve and to love and to preach and to teach and to live what God said. Why did they do that? Why? The answer is simple. That is the answer. It was for that very reason. Because he had not mistaught the word of God. He had not mistreated anybody. He had not sought to misrepresent who he was or any of those things. And he had lived God's word. And that's what the problem was. That fact and that fact alone, that reason alone, coupled with the fact that they were not willing to try 
to live as God wanted them to according to his word. That's the reason they, they did what they did. Listen, any sinner that comes to Christ will tell you. Matter of fact, in almost any scenario, almost anybody will tell you. It's easier to continue to do things the way you've decided to do them than to challenge your own thinking and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe I messed up. Maybe I need to change this. All of us that come to Christ have to come to that conclusion that the way we've been living is not right and we need to change that. That's the whole purpose of the word repent. That's what it means. It was much e The reason that they did what they did was it was much easier to continue to do things their own way, deluding themselves into thinking their way was his way, and getting rid of Jesus who got in the way of their thinking. And again, it wasn't that Jesus ever sinned or, or, or mistreated anybody. That, that wasn't the reason. That was the problem. It was his God-honoring life and teachings that exposed them and the fact that theirs, which they were not willing to change, were not. Now, that's scriptural, and we'll get there in just a minute. Jesus tells us what I just told you, that very text I mentioned earlier in Matthew chapter 15, uh, in, I'm sorry, in uh, John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. I'm going to ask you to please turn there, if you didn't, because this time we're going to look at it in a little more depth and intensity. Because... Before we read it, I want to tell you there are two other very frightening truths that are contained in John 15, verses, 20, uh, verses 18 through 25. The first one is the fact that Jesus himself told those who refused to take the time to truly examine their beliefs in light of his teachings and to come to know and live the truth he taught, not only didn't know him, but this is frightening. Jesus said, they don't know me, and they don't, know me, they don't even know the Father. Look at this, and this, this is very frightening. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 22. Look at what Jesus says. We'll get back to the other verses in a moment, but let's start with 22. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Translation. Jesus came and showed them what a life lived for God was supposed to look like. They said, if I hadn't, and they just plain didn't know, that's one thing. But now they know. They've seen it. He goes on to say, He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. He reiterates the fact again that that if, they, if they'd never seen what real righteousness looked like, if they'd never seen the way God wanted it to be in him, that's one thing. But he's been and he showed them and they've, they, they've said, no, we're not going to do that. They, they didn't want anything to do with him. And he said, they've hated both me and my father, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus said, they had no reason. No reason whatsoever. Now, he repeats in John 16, 1 through 3, again, shortly thereafter, how they don't even know God, or they don't know God either. But perhaps for us personally, as 
any of us as Christians who are, who are trying with everything we've got to get it right. We're trying to follow, we're messed up, okay? I'm messed up, you're messed up. If not, we wouldn't need Jesus. Let's get that out of the way, okay? Um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All have sinned and fallen short. We, we know that. We, we know that we all need help. We all know that we need Jesus. But for those who are trying with everything they've got to get it right, despite our, our myriad faults and failures, perhaps the scariest part of this for us personally is found in verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. I gotta stop, I gotta chase a rabbit. Hate is a very strong word. It is. It's a hot button word today. Okay, let's just, it is. And, and as we sit here and we're comfortable and we've taken communion and we love the Lord and all that, it's hard for us to think in terms of hate, but I want us to know that Jesus was very, very, very clear about this. And he said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. That's key. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He said, because you're different. Because you're trying to live for God. Because, you, because it means something to you, my, my teachings and, and what God has said, because of those things, you're different than the world. That's why the world hates you. It's not necessarily because you've done some horrible thing or sinned against somebody. It's because you are so different than they are. You're different in a way that they choose not to be. That's the problem. That's why they, that's why they hated Jesus. That's why I made such a big deal out of it at the beginning. That's why they hated Christ. It wasn't that he did something wrong or sin. It was that he showed them what it was supposed to look like and they weren't willing to try to understand and, and live for God the way he was living for God by doing God's will the way God intended it. And so that was the problem. That was the entire problem. That was the whole problem. He says in verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Why? Because our word is his word. That is, his word is our word. We share the same word. We share the same teaching. Brethren, this is hard, and, and I know, this is not one of those sermons where everybody's going to walk out and say, oh, that made me feel so good this morning. This, this isn't that, okay? And I get that. Doesn't make me feel good either, it's just fact. Listen, Jesus' point is this, and this is something that our young people, our new converts, our older converts, our preacher, everybody needs to understand. If you are truly living for God, there are going to be people in the world that are going to hate you. There is no denying that. Jesus said it. We've just read it. And the reason they are going to hate you is because you're living a life according to God, showing them the way it's supposed to be done despite all of our flaws and failures, and they're not going to like it because it shows them in the mirror. Uh, David talked about the mirror. It shows them in the mirror of our actions that they're not right. So they got two options, just like they had with Jesus. They can either try to learn and understand how to live for him and humble themselves and do it the way all of us who are Christians it, it came to at some point, or 
Because they're not willing to do that, they can hate and despise and revile you the same way that they did Jesus. But listen, if you're living for God and His Word, you are not going to be loved by the world in general. You are going to be hated. And here's the thing, if the world does love you, if, if everybody that is not a Christian thinks you are just a cat's meow, they think you're just, as Katie likes to say, all that in a bag of chips, and, and, and all of your, your non-Christian friends, all of those that live very worldly all week long and, and all of that, if they are completely comfortable with having you around because they see no difference between you and how you think and how you are and how you talk and how you act and how you dress and how you behave versus how they do, then as a Christian, you've got a problem. Please don't take that as Doug trying to, I'm not trying to be mean. Verse 19, if they are comfortable with you in every facet and they live for the world, then as a Christian, you've got a problem. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. If the world is right in love with you, you need to check and see if you're more worldly than Christ-like, yet because you are not out of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you are faithfully following Jesus, if you're trying every day to learn and love and live his word, then the world will hate you for the same reason that it hated Jesus. Not everybody, but, but the majority, just as Jesus talked about. <laughs> if you don't think so, get on social media and, and defend some of the things that the Lord says in light of some of the current headlines, and, and you'll find out in a hurry that the world doesn't think that much of you. The world will hate you if you live for Jesus for the same reason it hated Jesus. It's not because you've done anything wrong not because you've mistaught the truth. It's not because you have sinned against or mistreated anybody. It's very simply because you are living by the word of God. The very same word that sets you apart and identifies you as his. Did you know that? Did you know that it is the word of God that identifies you as his? John chapter 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by truth, your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart. The truth is what sets you apart from the world. If you are not set apart from the world, you need to spend more time in the truth. Okay? Again, it's not because you've done anything wrong or mistreated anybody. It's because you're living your life by the word. The very same word which makes you, therefore, just the opposite of those who choose not to live by it. The very same word that because you live it, it exposes that they're not living it. According to Jesus, look in John 17 for just a moment with me. Look at verse 14. Jesus himself said this. These are not Doug's words. It's, it's the word that separates us, brethren. It's the word of God that separates us as we live it, as we learn it, as we love it. Just like with Jesus, that's the reason. Jesus says in John 17 and verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. But it all begins with us living the word. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Jesus, in verses 14 through 17, takes these two bookmarks. And that is, um, that is God's word is truth. And he says right in the middle of that, he says that's why the world hates you, because you're different. You're different because of the word.
We just got back from Green Valley Bible Camp. Awesome time. We just got done with a study at Green Valley Bible Camp of the Beatitudes. A study which wound up on Friday night with a look at Jesus addressing this very same subject in the Sermon on the Mount as we're talking about this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, would you please? In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 10, we know the word blessed means happy, contented, makarios. Verse 10, as he wraps up the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If yours is the kingdom of heaven, if you are going to spend eternity in the kingdom of heaven, then the world is going to persecute you for living righteously. That's what it says in verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Unlike some of the other Beatitudes, he goes on to really, really make a point. Look what he says in verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. We don't feel too blessed when we're reviled and persecuted, but the the point Jesus is going to make is, hey, this is the way it's always been. This is nothing new, this idea that that those that are not living for God and and they're living for the world and they're living for the moment and they're living for sin and they're living for Satan, that they don't like you, this is nothing new. Jesus is going to make the point, hey, this is the way it's been since day one. Rejoice, because nothing has changed. He'll, uh, I'm sorry I'm getting ahead of myself here. Verse 11 again. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. couple of words to be aware of. You know, if we go out and we do bad stuff to people and we hurt people on purpose and all that stuff and people persecute us, well, they should, okay? Jesus is talking about a specific persecution here. When they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. When they tell lies about you because of your following Jesus, he says, you are so blessed. In fact, he says, this is how blessed you ought to be. Rejoice and be okay with it. No, no, wait a minute. I do have my glasses on. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. He doesn't just say be glad. He doesn't just say be happy. He said be happy. He says be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. Jesus said, listen, when when the world can see that you're living different, when the world can see that you don't live like they live, even if they persecute you for it because they don't want to live like you do and the way you live exposes that they're not living righteous, even then, he says, rejoice. Because great is your rule. You know what? I don't mean this in a bad way. But I want a great reward in heaven. Do you? I mean, I'll be glad just to get there, okay? Let's be honest. But a great reward, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Well, listen, if I ain't living the word of God down here and I ain't living for the kingdom enough down here that anybody in the world can see it, my reward might not be so great, according to this text. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God says, Jesus says, this is the way it's always been. But, but then, 
we go on from there and, and what we often do is we talk about the next two sections of text as almost independent of what precedes it. But I want for us to understand from now on when we talk about being the salt and the light, this goes right along with what he's just talked about. It's not a new chapter, it's not a new verse, it's not a new thought. Verses 13 and following are illustrating further the point that he's just made that you've got to live different from the world to the point they can see it, just like Jesus did. And, and if they persecute you, and they say false things about you, and they reject you, and they revile you, and they despise you because you're living the right way, the way God said, and they don't want to, and he says rejoice, verse 13 is all about the same thing. It's the same subject. It, it's the very next sentence. Jesus explaining it. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What did he just say? He said, hey, if you ain't living for God, to the point that you're different from the rotting world, like salt on meat, you, you've got to be seen as different. You've got to live God's word, even if they, and if they hate you for it, because it's so clear that they can see it, awesome! He said, look, if it isn't that way and the world loves you and, and they can't see a difference, it's like salt that's lost its flavor. What's it worth? Nothing. And, and this, you are the light of the world, is a further illustration of what he said in verses 11 and 12. You are the light of, a world, of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That is not a separate thought. It is the same thought. Jesus is making the illustration. It's the same way with light as it is with salt. You live for God, you don't hide it. You live for God so that people can see it. Now, it don't matter if they persecute you and they hate you for it. That's okay. Rejoice, in fact. But the prophets, even Jesus himself, they lived it. They let their light shine. Jesus was crucified because he let his light shine. Is that fair? Is that fair? That's absolutely right. Jesus was crucified because he didn't hide his light. Jesus was crucified because, and hated and despised because he lived what God said. He let his light shine as salt. He did not lose his, his flavor. He did not lose his ability to help preserve the rotting meat of the world. That's why. And, and, and please, from now on, when you read verses 13 and 16, understand how they connect to verses 11 and 12. It's, it's not a new thought. And, and we see the same idea again in Luke's account. Turn to me to Luke. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. I think, you know, I think sometimes when, when young people in the church especially are, are baptized into Christ, the parable of the sower tells us that in some cases, when persecution arises because of the word, when, when trouble comes because of the word, some people, they, they don't last in Christ. And, and I think one of the things that happens a lot, especially with, with our younger converts, is, is they obey the gospel and they know what they're supposed to do and all of that, but they don't understand that if they're truly living for Jesus, there's going to be people we're going to hate and reject them for it. They may lose some friends. They may lose some family. 
they may lose invitations to whatever. And I think a lot of times when this comes up and they're not prepared for that, that that's when you find when trouble arises because of the word, because of their convictions, because they've tried to let their light shine, that they'll kind of hide that light a little more. Brethren, we've got to be honest with people. If you're living for God, the world's not going to approve most of the time. Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, look at verse 22. Look at Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when men, oh, there's our word, hate. And then here's your word, you. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. When was the last time you jumped, for, I mean literally, I mean off the floor, jump for joy? Right? Is that what it says? Don't forget that illustration. I'm not doing it twice. <laughs> Jesus said, leap for joy. When they hate you and revile you and exclude you and cast you out for his name's sake, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Look what he says in verse 26. However, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Oh, the false prophets were loved. They were adored. They, they prophesied smooth things, Isaiah tells us. They, they, they were ear ticklers. They said what it took to please. They didn't worry about doing the will of God and, and shining the true light and being the salt of the earth because they wanted the approval of men more than they wanted the approval of God, like those in John chapter 12 and verse 42, where many of the leaders believed in him, but for fear of the Jews, fear of being put out of the synagogue, they would not confess him. Oh, the false prophets were loved, because they tell you whatever you wanted to hear, and all men spoke well of them, and Jesus said, if all men speak well of you, in other words, just what I said a few minutes ago, if the worldly people that you are around are so comfortable with you because you talk like they talk, you think like they think, you dress like they dress, you act like they act, you laugh at their dirty jokes, you're just like them. If they are that comfortable with you as a Christian, you've got a problem. That is what it says in verse 26 of Luke 6. Now, I'm not here this morning to inspire you to think that it is a pleasant thing to be hated. It is not. It is not a pleasant thing to be hated and rejected and all those things that happened to Jesus. It's not. If you think that's a pleasant or easy thing, ask him. But it is something that Jesus promises will be experienced by every child of the living God who is truly willing to live by the book goes with the territory, brethren. It's just part of being a Christian. It's just, it's just part, of, it's part of life. It's part of going to heaven. Such hatred and rejection is the natural reaction of those who refuse to examine themselves and their behavior in light of God's word and change it. And so they hate anybody who is doing that. Did you know how often the scripture tells us 
This just goes with the territory. Just goes with the territory. For example, let me just give you a couple of quick references. Matthew 10, 21 and 2. It says, brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. A little different context there perhaps in Matthew 10 time-wise, but the application is still ours. In Luke's account of those same words, in Luke 21, verses 16 and 17, it says you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. According to Isaiah 66 and verse 5, it's not necessarily just family and friends that will hate and seek to persecute you for living by the word either. Not only did Jesus talk about this, but so did the Apostle Paul. And once again, as I turn to this text, you'll find that it's not, the hating isn't because you've done anything wrong, it isn't because you hurt anybody, it isn't because you've sinned. It's simply what happens when one is seeking to live a godly and righteous life in an ungodly and unrighteous world. Turn to me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to notice what I just said. It's not because that Paul did anything wrong. Not because he hurt anybody or mistaught or anything like that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, look what he says. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Notice Paul's life. Long-suffering means patience, love, and perseverance. That's who Paul was, okay? Also, then he brings up persecutions. Why did the persecutions happen? Because he wasn't patient or loving? No, he said I was, verse 10. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. This is just par for the course for a faithful <coughs> child of God that's trying to live by the book. Persecutions will come and must be endured. He says, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Watch this, here's a promise. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You couldn't get it any clearer than that. He says, you're gonna. To say, well, no, I'm not. Everybody's gonna love me if I'm a Christian. And I do the right thing to everybody and I treat everybody. No, they're not. To say that is to say that, that Paul and, and, and Jesus had it wrong. He said, if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. He says, evil men, verse 13, and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Stay in the Bible. Stay the course. Keep living for God. That's the point. Doesn't matter if, if they persecute you just like they did Paul. It doesn't matter if those who want to live for themselves and Satan and the world and sin. It doesn't matter. What is his message? You must continue in the things you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Don't stop. 
Don't give up because people don't approve. If you're truly living what it says in the word, keep shining the light, keep being the salt, doesn't matter. Why? And what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Because great is your reward in heaven. You remember that? That's the reason. Paul says the same thing right here. Did you catch it? He talks about why you continue in those scriptures despite the persecutions are because they can give you salvation. Brethren, as we prepare to close, there's something I want for you to understand. I've only got one more text I'm turning to. I need for you to get this. The key, this is the bottom line of the whole lesson, the key to enduring joyfully, blessedly, makariosally, is that a word? I don't know, happily, the key to enduring all of the hatred and reviling and rejection and persecution that the ungodly and unrighteous world will seek to get you with as you live godly and righteously, here it is, keeping your eyes on the reward. That's it. Keeping your eyes on the reward. That is the key right here. He said, I, I, you know, these persecutions are going to come. You're going to face them, Timothy. But here's the key. Stay in the Bible. Keep your eyes on the prize. Because they will make you wise for salvation. That was the key in John 15 and 16 that we read about earlier, was this prize, how we will go to heaven. It was the key in John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. You'll recall when all those disciples walked away, and I didn't read the rest of it, but remember what Jesus did? Jesus turned and said, do you want to go too? And what did Peter say? He said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. I'm not going anywhere. He said the first part of that, not the second. That's my add-in. But it, what was the point? The point is, keep your. you have the words of eternal life. I, I don't care who leaves. I don't care who does this. I don't care who hates you, Lord. I, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ because the reward is I get to go to heaven. It was the key in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and Luke 6, 22 and 23. We talked about that. Great is your reward. It was the key in Matthew 10, 21 and 22. It seems like every time that we read about how the world's going to hate us, somewhere, somewhere just a little ways further down, God talks about, okay, here's your reward. It, it, it seems to always be tied in there. Did you know that even happened with Jesus? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when it talks about Jesus enduring, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What does it tell you? The endurance of the persecution. How do you endure it? looking at the reward. When we take our eyes off the reward, that's when we've got a problem. Final verse of the morning. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul connected the persecution that we're going to face when we try to live for God and tied it to the reward? Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. Turn there with me if you would. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. They're tied together. There's no escaping. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, not we will be, not we hope to be, not that maybe we're going to be. 
we are. He's talking to all of those who have been baptized into Christ, as he's written about at length in Romans 6, and he says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are. Right now, right this moment when he wrote this, we are. And you and I are, if we're in Christ, children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are an heir. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to us if we're in him. And, and this is this marvelous reward he's talking about. Uh-oh. And what does he tie it to? If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Persecution is always seen tied to the reward. Because if we don't keep our eyes on the reward, we could fall to the persecution. I recently saw a t-shirt that said, I would rather stand with God and be condemned by the world than to stand with the world and be condemned by God. I don't know where you are this morning. But if you're somebody in this room this morning, and you've been doing the best you can to live for Jesus, and you're trying, you're not perfect, but you're trying. You're really trying. And somebody has a problem with you, maybe in your family, friends, whomever. Somebody's got a problem, a big problem with you. They could be said to dislike you, avoid you, revile you, reject you because of your Christianity. Then I want to see you jump when you leave this morning. Jesus said, leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. And if none of the worldly folks you know have any problem with your Christian convictions, anybody, anywhere. If all men speak well of you despite your Christian convictions, then maybe you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you need the prayers of the church so you can become a brighter light, a stronger salt, and a better example like Jesus so that they will come to hate and have a problem with you. Because then, you can really rejoice because great is your reward. Maybe you need the prayers to be a stronger Christian. Maybe you've never become a Christian. I'll warn you. I've been warning you all morning. When you become a Christian, there's going to be people that ain't going to think too highly of it, or you. But there's nothing like having your name written in heaven. Is the church? If you do that this morning, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We'd gladly do that or again. If you need the prayers of the church to shine the light brighter, or maybe if you're just struggling to endure some of the persecution and hatred that you're getting because you're seeking to follow God, we can pray for you and rejoice with you. Whatever it is you need this morning, let us know right now as we stand and sing.